a lot of professionals feel the great urge to be able to answer the questions. And I think that one of the things that we should be challenged with in our world is number one, where do we theorize where it, it doesn't get shared as gospel? I think that's the conversation is where do we theorize now? Because it can't just be in our little, what we think are obscure journals. We can't just print these things anymore on our medium, you know, accounts. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, the podcast that's designed so people who know nothing about informatics can come to understand everything there is to know. I'm Kevin Johnson, a physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter. And I'm Harris Bland, Senior Project Manager in Biomedical Informatics and PhD candidate in Human Genetics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And you can find me at HTBland21 on Twitter. This episode, we're joined by the wonderful Evan Thornburg. And truly, I mean wonderful. So glad we had a chance to meet Evan. Bioethicist and Health Equity Special Advisor for the City of Philadelphia. Evan previously worked in the mayor's office as Director of LGBT Affairs and just graduated from Temple University here in Philadelphia with their Master's in Bioethics, where they studied public health policy and the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Things we'll talk about quite a bit in this podcast episode. So I actually found Evan on TikTok. Um, yes, you scrolling, did. Yeah, scrolling through, doing my doom scrolling. But they their videos captured me and just sucked me in because their videos were succinct about these really important issues in public health. And they do a great job making it easy for everyone to understand. Yeah, in a way, you know, Evan totally embodies the values of this podcast. And I was so excited that you gave us a chance to talk. We hope that everybody out there loves what they had to say. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to Informatics in the Rail. I'm Kevin Johnson. Um, I guess I'm your MC for the evening. And Harris? I'm Harris Bland, Senior Project Manager at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And we have a special guest, Evan, who you heard about already. Evan? Hi, my name is Evan. I use she or they pronouns, and I am a bioethicist and work in public health. Wonderful. Well, we have a lot to talk with you about, but I want to start off by asking you probably a softball question, which is when you're at home and you're listening to music, what's your favorite genre? I have a mix of genres that I love to listen to, um, but it does range with my mood, but I am mostly sort of a like, R&B, sometimes smoother jazz, a little bit of folk person. And are you inspired by any particular song or artist in that genre? <laughs> this may overdo it for me, but uh, like give a lot of who I am away. But I've recently been listening to a lot of Tracy Chapman. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I will. I want to sing Fast Car, but I'm not going to sing it right here. But I still okay. love that song. Do you know that Luke, is it Luke Combs? Who's yeah. now made, yeah, mm -hmm. he has a rendition of it that I have to say, I mean, it's good. 
I think it's good. It's good. I don't let know. Tracy I, have hers. I loved that Tracy was clinging so tightly to the rights and wasn't letting people do her music. And I'm sort of like, of all the ones you choose to finally let, because you know how many people have wanted to cover Fast Car. Yeah. Is a million people. Um, and so I was sort of like, why that choice? You know? Well, this might be a great example of one of the areas that we are hoping to cover today. So Harris, and I think everybody, many of the people know that I have taken on a real interest in information, trust, mistrust, trustworthiness, misinformation, disinformation, and how we in informatics can either make that situation worse or better, especially in the world of AI. We were incredibly excited to see the work that you've been doing, Evan, in terms of TikTok. So maybe we could start by hearing a little bit about your journey and how TikTok became one of your outlets. So weirdly enough, I I mean, I've worked in public health through the COVID-19 pandemic. So Mm. that's the first like key component to that is seeing how much, uh, and you know, I'm in Philadelphia as you know, Kevin, you are too. And one of the big risks or the big concerns on our end when we were thinking about things like vaccination and getting encouraging people to get tested and encouraging people to engage in mitigation efforts was misinformation, like because so much was flying around. Now, I would I would initially say that what first was flying around was misinformation because of all the confusion and the fear and like everybody's learning on the fly. What slowly crept in or not slowly, but sort of overcame that was later on was disinformation. And so I'm watching that in real time in the job that I'm doing in a city that has a lot of the, I hate using the term, but like risk factors, right? Right a huge component of folks who are subject to believing or consuming that are people who deal with limited education, uh, institutional education, younger people, older people, communities, vulnerable populations, especially. And poverty has a huge effect on all of those groups, right? And in how they consume information. And so Philadelphia has all of those things blended. Um, And so there was a huge risk. And so Philadelphia, what people don't talk about, because we've talked so much about other spaces, um, large urban spaces and their outbreaks is that Philadelphia did not experience the similar outbreak to cities of its similar size. And I think that has a lot to do with how, even with our missteps, because there were some terrible things that happened, how well we engaged the population, how much the population did trust us and continue to trust us even with mistakes made. And how thoughtful things like vaccine rollout and testing were and some of the community groups that came together. So that was the first piece. Mm-hmm. The second piece was I went to school during the pan- <laughs> during the pandemic, too, mm-hmm. uh, because it was so much easier for me to get to and from like work and class uh, because everything was virtual. And so in doing so, what ended up happening was being in a bioethics course. Uh, master's program in a med school. So most of my colleagues in class are M1s and M2s. You also see the effects on, first of all, newer or soon-to-be doctors' concerns around these issues, because it came up a lot in a lot of our classes. I'm sure. And when I started to work on my thesis, so I was like, this obviously has to be my thesis because the question for any bioethicist is going to be the ethics of these things. How do we design policy? How do we talk about these things? Because even good medical policy 
can be misconstrued or can be rescinded or can be challenged with the wrong information flying around. Like right. the decision, upon, uh, there was a large scale meeting of bioethicists around policy relating to vaccination requirements for mm-hmm. transplants. Yes. Um, and the reason this happened is because we were seeing a lot of people who were really, really sick and people who would have been healthy three weeks ago now needing things like lung transplants and being so severely sick that they were at the top or the peak point of the list. They kind of jumped to the front of the line, right? Right. And then as vaccines started to come out, the question became like, how do we prioritize this if people are refusing vaccination, which is a, which is a large-scale prevention and mitigation tool? Right. Is this something that we should not allow? Is this something that has to be part of policy? And the policy that folks came up with was that it, it's requisite because <laughs> organs are in short supply, which is why they end up going to the people in the worst need and frequently don't even end up in those people's uh, access to those people. And that because COVID is such a large scale threat, we can't risk someone getting sick with COVID and then thus destroying an organ that may have gone to somebody who would have engaged in all the prevention methods. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And that includes because there was a higher, it wasn't just like people who were not getting vaccinated. Those people were like not saying, I'm not gonna get vaccinated, but I'll continue to mask. A lot of them had similar at-risk behaviors. This is the other thing that got thought about was that if someone's not willing to get vaccinated, they're probably also not masking. There's also these, so it puts their organ at great risk. And it means that that organ ostensibly gets wasted if that person gets sick. And the first thing that's going to go is most likely the organ or the organ's not going to take very well. There's a lot of stuff to it. So I have to, I have to ask you, I'm going to stop you just for a second to ask a couple of questions, just because I think there's at least three terms that are going to turn out to be really important going forward that we should explain. First, what is bioethics? It's a blend. Uh, it's the principles that we design uh, around medicine, healthcare, and public health, basically. But what does that mean? It for people who study bioethics, you're kind of studying a mixture of like medical anthropology. There's a little bit of epidemiology in there, depending on which way you go with your um, elective courses. There is public health classes. And then there's an underpinning of philosophy helping us understand how we make decisions, right? Um, and so the triangle is uh, that in medicine, there are three core like components, and that is beneficence, non-maleficence, and autonomy. But urban bioethics, which is the the specialized program that I was in, expands this further. Uh, it's got a more like health equity design to it. Right. And so what we end up designing for is we think of these things as justice, agency, and non-maleficence. Hmm. So there's an expansion or a blowout of like, we can't just do good. We also have to engage in acts of justice. We can't just have somebody be autonomous, but also have agency or be collaborators in their health. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So just to help. So ethics, we think of as sort of the moral principles that govern conduct or behavior. Mm-hmm. And so bioethics would be basically that applied to biomedicine. Is that one way to look at it? Anything that's health or medicine. Yeah. Um, more and more, it's getting expanded beyond just like medical care. It's very, very new in the host of like areas of expertise. It only started in the 1940s yeah. after the Nuremberg trials. I mean, it's based off of the judge's response to the Nuremberg trials. It's it, He 
put forth like 10 principles or something that he announced when he was giving his final opinion in these trials. Yeah. So readers who are interested in this, if you look up Nuremberg or if you look up bioethics, you're going to find a ton. Um, There's also uh, information on a couple of the larger government sites about this because it's a really important part of how we conduct research. So if you want to learn about this, look at the conduct of research websites and you'll find it. Uh, Let me ask two more terms really quickly. Um, You mentioned misinformation Mm -hmm. and disinformation. Do you want to describe those two? Yeah. So there's misinformation. This is just any information that's incorrectly been shared or has been incorrectly uh, been exchanged. It can be to some extent harmless and it can be a mistake. That's what's important to note is so misinformation happens all the time in health. I mean, if you come in and you are a layman, you do not have any health training whatsoever, and you're getting a very severe diagnosis, and you want to, you hear all of this information from your healthcare provider, and then you try to go home and explain it to your grandmother, who then tries to explain it to your aunt. The telephone game. Right. It, It often happens in telephone. It happens in communities all the time. I mean, like... And it's also, it's it's a misunderstanding of certain information too. Like in HIV, when we say that HIV is spread through bodily fluids, a lot of people include saliva because- It's a bodily fluid. It's a bodily fluid, which is why in HIV, we had to start to say like um, more specifically blood and, you know, um, semen and vaginal secretions. Uh, we had to be specific in our language because we realized saying bodily fluids was overly assumptive. That created misinformation, but disinformation is intentional. It's engineered, it's created, it's crafted. It usually, for people who are creating it, it has some sort of monetary gain for them to be Uh uh, disingenuous. If it doesn't have a monetary gain, it has a power gain, but that power gain usually is monetary in some way. And then there's a little teeny tiny thing, well, not teeny tiny, but there's a subcategory of disinformation called malinformation. And this is when disinformation is created very specifically to denigrate or create mistrust in a group or a person. So you can have disinformation about a vaccine or you can have a disinformation about uh, a doctor who's designed the vaccine. And that would actually be considered malinformation because you are trying to tank that person's career or you're trying to make sure that trolls and other people harass them. Uh, The intent of malinformation is to target individuals or a group of individuals, namely vulnerable populations. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting to hear these terms. And I think that COVID allowed us to have an opportunity to see these things in real time that maybe generations haven't seen and or remember. You know, when I think about historically in America, where we might have seen breakouts of misinformation or even disinformation. I think about the HIV uh, epidemic, but I also think about immigration in the early 1900s, especially um, around uh, mental health. Uh, If you take a look at like Ellis Island and and how um, folks came in into the immigration process, anyone that was deemed uh, mentally ill because of disinformation they weren't accepted into the United States and would be automatically deported. And so I think about, you know, a lot of folks don't realize how prevalent disinformation and misinformation can be in healthcare and health systems, but we've, we have a long history of it. It's just, it has these little waves and it gets forgotten. And then we have another wave. Well, we've also sort of looked at it in like the historic events of it. We sort of look at it and we're, we almost like laugh at that 
era or that time. Yeah. But with the information that people had access to of that time, it wasn't nonsense. Like, I mean, the very first right. vaccine suffered from misinformation. I mean, that's the thing that people, uh, and even like, um, was it John Lister who came up with the procedure, surgical procedures for sterilization and for wound care mm. uh, because of infection? I mean, the amount of misinformation, disinformation that was spread about him from medical professionals who thought he was trying to upend them from their surgical residency jobs and their like leadership of surgical hospital spaces. I mean, he was basically like, hey, using these tools over and over again without cleaning them or without washing our hands is causing people to get purple fever. And they were like, there was a lot of information that was spread about him that said he was a liar. I mean, there was huge publications that were put out. So so, and another example would be cowpox and smallpox, right. where a really infamous illustrator drew a picture saying that people who got treated for or vaccinated against smallpox with the cowpox virus were going to turn into cows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That's, kind of, that's like that's like chicken of the sea, you know, and yeah. tuna. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you could turn into Barbie. Um, My gosh. <laughs> I just saw Barbie this weekend. I got to say, it's also amazing. Please go see it. I've or seen watch it. it. Oh, so good. Maybe we could have a whole episode on helping Kevin understand Barbie. Oh, I'm happy to help that. Yeah, I am. Sure. I have never felt more like a cis black male than <laughs> I did when I was watching that. It's like, I'm sure there's a message here that I'm supposed to get. My sisters were hysterical. Um, they thought it was so funny and so on point. And I'm like, I'm trying, but I okay, so it's experiential. We- what I get, what I hear you saying is you've had a guitar that you played for people. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, that. yeah there true. it is. There. <laughs> right, right. But, but, but the point, the point that that I think, you know, Evan, the point that you're making about misinformation and disinformation, I want to add one thing to that. I was just at a meeting with the American Board of Internal Medicine, and there was this epiphany that I had, which is. And this isn't just my epiphany. We have a report that just came out about this, too, is that today's information may be tomorrow's misinformation and yesterday's misinformation could be today's information and that there is this fluid continuum so that there are people who say things now where the right statement to make to them isn't that what they're saying is wrong, but it is that was right until this other thing happened. And now we know this other thing, like people, for example, who still say masks don't help with COVID. And the answer is, well, we thought that until we realized that COVID was aerosolized. And now we know that masks really do help. Some people didn't really get the whole continuum in their statements that they make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the interesting thing um discussing this and thinking about uh, who is harmed the most from misinformation are the communities that are marginalized or underserved. And that has been a continuous pattern over time um, because information trickles to them and then they might not get the updated information um, or find an opportunity to learn additional information. And I think about how even in Tennessee, I still hear people continuing to believe that blood type had an effect on your chances of getting COVID. And 
that was a 2020 theory that was debunked. But there's still people who believe that who just don't have access to the updated information or have access to people with the updated information. So it's uh, it's stuck in their their memory. And that's what they still think. So I love that you bring this up, Harris, because one of the things that I think I because <laughs> you only have so much time and space and I already had a very long thesis. One of the things <laughs> that <laughs> I didn't get a chance to I think expand upon as much as I would have liked and may do it another time is this conversation for academics and for professionals that we need to have, which is about information saturation, right? Um, mm. Or infodemia or infodemic. That's that's the other portion of this. The pressure for, in academia especially, the pressure or the interest or the intensity and the reward system that comes with things like publishing has grown at a rate where now every academic, every person who works in these fields and these worlds sort of immediately upon theorizing rushes to publish something. And I think mm. that is also harming us. So what you're mentioning is a theory. And it was a theory that was expanded upon in like opinion pieces and in other published works, but it hadn't yet experienced the experimentation or the research that it required, right? Um, because people were so busy looking for answers. And in this day and age where we have so many forms, I mean, we're sitting here having a conversation on a podcast. There's other podcasts being recorded right now. Um, yeah. There's mainstream media, then there's YouTube University, essentially, there's all of these places where information and media are being constantly generated. I have a TikTok. Because there's so much generation that's happening, a lot of professionals feel the great urge to be able to answer the questions. And I think that one of the things that we should be challenged with in our world is, number one, where do we theorize where it, it doesn't get shared as gospel because it is very very important on my tiktok account that i share things that have some finality to them Mm. otherwise i risk eroding some trust because i've decided to theorize in the public square and not everybody understands that what i'm doing knows the difference between me as a, a professional theorizing in front of them and stating information so I think that's the first thing that really that's it's like a more yeah. subtle thing that I haven't ever I haven't really gotten to like expand upon. But it's funny that you mentioned that because you're saying someone's theorizing is now still circulating three years later in right. a way that has finality to it for people. And they're making health decisions, individualized health behavior and decisions off of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, what you said about how we publish and then it kind of gets picked up and goes elsewhere is often uh, a nice way to see that misinformation start because we're seeing that people are looking for published resources in scientific literature, but then CNN picks up this article and puts the CNN spin, which might not be anywhere malicious, but it's just that it changes it into a different format that changes the scientific meaning at times. 
And then someone on TikTok or YouTube picks it up. And also, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, um, the different uh, versions of the Bible, that there's these different interpretations and there's these different versions that have changed words over time. And it's somewhat changed the meaning, you know, so I think uh, thinking about that, it's interesting to watch that progression and see how the the misinformation like you said it's not necessarily malicious but it's that we aren't really giving out finalized information all the time we're putting out the theories in hopes that it will help others expand that knowledge but we have the public checking that information out now too and getting very confused it's that yep. right it's the fact that the public is now hyper vigilant of these things and what used to be uh, an obscure article that maybe two students would pull up in the course of 10 years on like JSTOR where yeah. you like theorized in a process and the rest of the academic community, niche academic community that you're in also understood um, what you were doing is now subject to the possibility of being public. And we just don't know what catches, right? I think that's the conversation is where right. do we theorize now? Because it can't just be in our little, what we think are obscure journals. We can't just print these things anymore on our medium, you know, accounts. We sort of have to be a little more, I'm going to use the word conservative with where we've decided to like do a lot of our educated thinking. But I, I have to push back a little bit. You know, one of the challenges of informatics is that it relies on data that are generated by specific subgroups that then can be analyzed. When I hear this challenge of, as you can say, sort of putting theory in the public, I can think of many examples, as can you, about how the face of medicine changed based on somebody appropriately theorizing in the public. You know, you and your role as director of LGBTQ health for the city uh, which is what you had for a while, right? I was the I was uh, the deputy director of LGBTQ affairs. So generally, affairs. thank yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. So um, you know HIV. So the stories of HIV, which have been well publicized, began pre-social media. But if they had been happening during the era of Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, etc. There would have been pictures of people with funny rashes that turned out to be cabbages. There would have been conversations among people in New York, California, Florida, who were seeing all of their friends dying of some mysterious illness that nobody was spending any attention on. And there would have been allies and supporters around the theory that the government maybe is ignoring what's happening with these patients who were dying right. of this disease that had no name, right? So actually, that would have been a good theory to put out in retrospect, and it could have potentially hastened Reagan's decision to, do, to fund AIDS research. Another example, there is this group of people in China who seem to be dying of an ARDS-like illness in January. And in the era of social media, it quickly went out that this might be a virus that was early early on called the Wuhan virus and had other names, but it was recognized in people in California that they were seeing a similar small population of people who had been coming in from Asia, who also were had contacts, who were getting, initially just they were getting it, but then later their contacts, an ARDS-like picture. So the, the theory that this could be a virus 
and that it may or may not be transmitted from person to person was put out in the public. So wouldn't you say those were great examples, although risky examples of public theorizing? So it's not me saying that public theorizing all has to stop. It's more me saying that we have to be decisive. I I don't think that sort of public theorizing was bad. I think that was important because people should know that there's a sickness that is occurring for people. But do I think that the person who said like, well, maybe it's attached to blood type should have theorized in the public square? No. I think we have to look at information and say, and again, this is someone who loves information and loves sharing it, but we have to look at information, especially when we're theorizing it and recognize when we have a lot more information as academics with training, right? right? I think that's what's super important. I think like, for example, VAERS is open source. I don't love that anymore. And I, the reason I don't love that anymore is because people don't understand VAERS. What is VAERS? What is VAERS for our audience? Oh man, what does it stand for? I think it's the vaccine event reporting system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, but the, the A is like. Adverse. Adverse. Yeah. Right. Um, Um, So the vaccine, so VAERS is the vaccine adverse event reporting system, I think. Right. And the issue with this is that it's open view. Anybody who has what they think is related to their vaccination Mm -hmm. and reported something is in there. So if I had a vaccine, if if I received a vaccination and then stubbed my toe, I could say, oh, the vaccine made me clumsier. (laughs) And it's just like those things are unrelated events. A lot of it that's in there is just generally somebody reporting something that happened to them in conjunction or relationship to when they had a vaccine. It's, It's all hypothetical. But a lot of the general populace doesn't understand that. They think that it is, okay, these things are listed here. So these things are related to vaccination. And so I think that there's two, there's two ways to answer that. There's multiple ways to answer this is that either we have to really get better at and younger with educating people Mm -hmm. about how to consume theory Yep. and, or because things can be a yes. And we have to start to become more decisive of what we theorize on in public square. If there's a sickness going around, I think it's important people know that they're at risk, but if we're all starting to get into the weeds of what could it be attached to, we should be careful. We should be careful because that ultimately people will, again, take that to me to be the gospel. Us three sitting here and saying, well, maybe it's attached to blood type. Maybe it's attached to sickle cell anemia. Maybe it's attached to is good theorizing amidst people with information and education and the, the scientific background. It's not always good when everybody of any background without the primer information yeah. can participate or can walk can walk in on the conversation for 10 minutes and walk away and start to share that, right? It's sort of yeah. like um and it's not me wanting to be secretive. It's like it's 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 difficult. I, I would prefer that where we landed with this is that we became more educational. Yeah, I think I think your point is right on in that one of the things I really love about this is recognizing that in a world where citizen science and transparency and where do your tax dollars go is one of the expect- expectations these days, we are also sowing the seeds for people who don't understand the c- continuum of care from theory to fact. 
mm. or at least today's fact. And as I'm looking at the VAERS system on, on screen right now, it's occurring to me that, you know, wouldn't it be great, for example, if we had some tools, maybe they're AI-based, whose, whose, whose job is to provide metadata so that anyone looking at it would actually see something like, in the entire internet, this is the first such report, or this has been corroborated by a thousand other entries, or just some sort of evidentiary base uh, that says, you should pay attention to this, or it's a little early to pay attention to this. Because your point about blood type, you know, when that, when that first surfaced, there were many people who were trying to figure out the, the so-called long COVID. And there continue to be researchers looking at all sorts of issues related to HLA, which is basically sort of like blood type, right? And other ways in which we can understand these patients. So it's not a wrong statement, but what it is, is it's an early theory. And, and helping people to get the idea that you may see things that we will call not quite ready for prime time on the internet versus other things that are asserted as ready for prime time, but are actually either wrong now or used to be right, but are no longer right, or that are conjectures versus other things that are absolutely targeting you as a person who's into, you know, you're almost a flat earther. So you're going to believe anything we tell you and you need to basically pay attention. So do you, given, given your, I mean, really excellent points here, what, what are you doing in TikTok to help people understand this issue of information, misinformation theory? Well, one of the things I like to do is I like to simplify information. Um, I think the, when we had a section on health literacy and simultaneously I was exploring a health literacy project at work, one of the things that really was jarring for me to learn was how much disparity existed between people's actual like reading comprehension levels on average yes and that's just reading comprehension like health literacy is even lower than somebody's Mm -hmm. reading comprehension so reading comprehension is just like can you read street signs can you read the newspaper can you read a book um health literacy and the, the very specific terminology and language and background that is needed for health information is even lower on average for people again and I don't know if this is ego or hubris or what, but it's super important in my mind that we make these things accessible. Yeah. It, and it's and it's possible. We don't have to call my my favorite example is we don't have to call everything, you know, gastroenteritis. We don't have to do that. <laughs> we can yeah. say you have a stomach ache. We can say that. Yeah. And that is by and large correct, right? I understand for people you know, who work in the sciences to be like, well, it's not exactly a stomach ache. Like, okay, that's for us though. Like, I got it. You know, like I got it. But do you think that if you point out those like splitting hair details that the science needs to know to someone whose stomach is hurting, do you think you need to, they want you to be talking about their stomach ache? Right. That's what they're feeling. I understand the stomach's a complex place. Okay, like yeah. I understand that. Somebody else doesn't understand that. Their stomach yeah. hurts. So recognizing when we need a fine pen and when we need a wide brush is kind of what I, I want people. So I hope that um, people who work in medicine and follow me get a sense of that and realize like, oh, this can be simplified. I actually had um, a neuroscientist who teaches a class on polypharmacy, which mm-hmm. is just the the issue of people taking multiple medications together. Right. 
I did a three minute video on polypharmacy and he dropped into the comments and he said, this is a really great video. I only have one really important comment and he, and, it, and he followed it up by saying, you did a better job of explaining this in three minutes that is so comprehensive than I've ever done in my class. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and he was like, people, he's like, I have struggled to communicate this to students. And I am baffled that somehow you like picked out the parts that really need to be known for other people to be encouraged to look at their like grandparents' medication cabinet and like ask questions. And it's that, right? Mm. That's what I hope to do for people who are professionals or who are scientists or have these backgrounds. The other thing I want, hopefully in some of my videos, is for people to learn that not everything is this or that, right? We have very dichotomous minds and yes. the internet has not made that better. And I think what I love about being a bioethicist and the reason why I'm not like an MD or like any of the things I aspired to in medicine prior to becoming a bioethicist is that I love the human component. The very first class you have in bioethics, at least with the teacher I had, the first thing she said was, is you are going to be sitting in this class and hoping that I'm going to teach you how to make the right decision amongst a bunch of wrong ones. And she was like, it's not going to happen. Okay. More often than not, you are going to have to make a decision between a bad thing and a worse thing or a not so great thing and a terrible thing. Not everything, and, and and sometimes you're gonna just have like, or you're gonna be in a in a space where you're gonna have to communicate that something is neutral, even though everybody wants it to be bad, and that's hard. Yep, that's harder than finding the good or the bad in things. Not everything has a good and a bad. Some things just are. Some things are could be worse. Right. Um. And I think that's what I hope for people to understand. Uh, I see it a lot in my comment sections when I pose a question on one of my videos that people try to answer the question. Right. And they try to answer it with finality. Like, well, this has to be like the, the one that's got the worst amount of this is the one, the question I ask about um, the religious rights of someone being fed lab grown meat against their knowledge, against their consent, mm -hmm. um, which is a real threat. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in the comments are so, they're like, well, you know, it's not halal because of this, or it's not kosher because of this, or like, you know, and then other people are like, well, it's, it is kosher because of this, or it is halal because of this. And I'm like, see, like, and none of you are wrong um, as far as we understand halal and kosher. Mm -hmm. And that's also wasn't my question about <laughs> the rights of the individual but people really want their answer to be right. And I think I want people to better understand that in the sciences, I think the further along you get into the sciences, the more you realize that you're striving for the right answer, but there's so much gray space around. Yep. You know, this is a terrible analogy. I'm still going to make it. Um, I, I really enjoy the, the, ser the series called The Good Place. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in this season, one of the kind of recurring ethical dilemmas was you're on a trolley and the brakes don't work and you're headed for this entire crowd of people you don't know. And you can either hit them or you can veer off to the other track where this person who you know very well 
is sitting with his or her child, what do you do? So do you hit the strangers that you don't know? Do you hit the, you know, and your point is that's not the type of decision most of us have to make, right? But many people think that that's the decision they have to make. And so they emphatically defend what is an impossible, consensual, essentially a no-win situation. And I think that that has major data implications, right? Because the, the data can only sort of tell us those things that are in the data. The data may be biased, and we know that. The, the mechanisms we use to assess truth in data, typically statistics, may be biased. We know that too. Um, How it's read may be biased. Like correct. Data. The data may be well presented, like well published, but how it's how it's read by any number of individuals can be biased. That's right. That's right. And then you add AI to this, which can produce very authentic looking material that but may has or no may not ethical be. principles. Right. Yeah. I love the trolley car example because uh, there are people who bring that up, and I. Uh, the, so I'm not the only one who watches The Good Place? <laughs> oh, I love The Good Place. <laughs> well, the Charlie Car example, it comes up in bioethics, but what we end up doing is that you ask the question, you know, on one side you have, you know, three children tied to a track, and on the other side you have a murderer. How do you swap the tracks? And this is the reason we do this exercise in this way to understand it is to understand how our, our morality shifts or becomes mm -hmm. a struggle as we learn more about the ordeal right? or the instance or the example. And that's why it's important that we aren't this dichotomous because our we recognize that our morality can shift. So in that first one, everybody's answer is, oh, for sure, you hit the, you hit the murderer. If we have to sacrifice somebody, it's going to be the murderer. Then the question becomes, okay, we find out that the murderer is also a child. Mm. And then everybody's like, no fair. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then people become up. They're like, what? you know, mm -hmm. and that becomes more difficult, right? Because now you, you felt your morality. And so the question that, you know, the professor then asked was like, why did you hesitate? You were so certain nothing changed about what you knew the first time. We just added more information. Why mm -hmm. are you hesitating now? You were very certain before. So then the next layer is, it's not just any child, it's your child. Mm. Your child's a murderer. And there's innocent children on this side. And then you can see how morality can be biased, right? Because morality can shift based on more details, but then when you add in your own experience, it can be more biased. And that's important to know about ourselves. So the trolley car, when people bring it up, the, the sad thing is, is that they don't complete the exercise, which is, it's supposed mm -hmm. to do that. Got it. Yeah. It's interesting because I see that intersection of morality and bias being a way to cultivate the misinformation as well. I'm here in Tennessee where uh, we've had a lot of discussions about LGBT health, particularly uh, gender affirming care and the abortion care with Dobbs. And it's driven often by bias, either side of the spectrum. But that's also a bias from people's moral stance on those issues. And I've watched how misinformation has gotten inter intertwined into them on, on both sides of the discussion and trying to get people to understand that healthcare, we have seen it as a very binary, finite. This is if you have a stomach ache, you take a pill or if you break a, a bone, you put a cast on it. Or if you have a heart attack, you have a surgery or, you know, we all have if you have this, 
then you do this. And I think that when you add this morality component and maybe even pushing it into a misinformation component, it really creates a situation where people, like you've said, you don't have a good decision, bad decision. It's a bad decision or worse decision. And a lot of people don't like to have that interaction at all, ever. Right. It's um, when morality is based inside of ideology. Hmm. Ideology requires us to simplify all there's no nuance to ideology. And when I say ideology, I say that for any form, right? <laughs> on all, all sides. I mean, we've, we've, we've made these things on a spectrum of like conservative and progressive, but I know plenty of people who are hyper progressive, who some of their ideology, I'm like, you still should challenge that. <laughs> like you should it's, still it be a full circle. Like there was a really great video from another account that I really love. And one of the things that in their video, they talked about like, people asking, well, why don't we just kill all bigots? And my question became, how do we define bigot? Yeah. And as we define bigot, are there any instances where someone can fit the definition of bigot, but it may not be when we learn more about their, their scenario, would we feel comfortable still following through with this finite decision to kill all bigots? And people started to be like, and I was like, that seat, you can't, it's hard. And people who their ideology says that abortion is wrong have not been taught about how abortion is cancer care. And that Mm. makes them very uncomfortable when they learn that one of the things that has to happen in cancer care, unfortunately, that a lot of people discover their cancer while pregnant. And in order to care for their cancer and ensure the survival of someone who is most likely already a parent, mm-hmm. most likely the cancer will render it impossible for both the fetus and the birthing person to survive. People get really uncomfortable yep. then with their ideology because their ideology didn't tell them that abortion is care for cancer. Their ideology told them that it's just women exclusively, who are making all the wrong sexual choices mm-hmm. and who are optioning this as their form of like addressing their their uh, their bad moral decisions, right? We want to pu- and we should also unpack why we want to un- we want to punish women for being sexually explorative. But like that's a whole other conversation. But if we're just talking about medicine, yeah, you have endangered someone's mother who is, discovered cancer while three months pregnant. What do you do? Do you refuse her the abortion? And it's also why a lot of the anti-abortion movement has started to try to like pull the hairs apart on how they're like, oh, when we said abortion, we didn't mean that. That's a DNC. That's a, they've started to try and like embellish what they meant and it's not what they meant. And so it's, it's very interesting that, but ideology, I think, is the real struggle. And I have plenty of ideologies that have finality that I love to work on or I want to work on for myself as a person. But as a bioethicist, I have to be this conscientious, at least, at least be conscientious of that and how that affects decision-making and that it's not so simple. And that's why I think I love putting people through these thought experiments, but I wish we would do it younger. I wish we would show this kind of detail in the world when we were when we we're younger, I was very blessed to get philosophy courses in high school. And so I sort of had an, an, an initiation to it. But we never move away from that elementary design of like, there's, there's big and small, there's short and tall, there's 
blue and red. There's it's too. Yeah, we, we don't blow it out for people. I think a part of the strategy might be to help educate um, younger generations about the next question one should ask. Right? Mm. I think that it's very easy for us to have a very closed-minded approach, uh, if you will, a dogmatic approach to many decisions. Um, a really good example, there's, some, there's another person in Philadelphia who just moved here from Columbia, who's now an Obama Foundation scholar, Desmond Upton Patton, who at some point we'll get on here. But Desmond's work is incredibly enlightening. He's using AI techniques, and he's got a group called the Safe Lab. They're using AI techniques to take the tweets of people who come from communities where we typically have strong biases against that community, to your point about the murderer who's a child, right? And, on, and using AI to basically translate what's actually happening in this person's life so that other people can appreciate who they are as people. Um, and as a social scientist, social worker, which he's already always calls himself, this work has just been eye opening. And that's partly why I think President Obama wanted to get him into this group. And his whole point is the people who are making these decisions, it's exactly the point that, that you're making, Evan, maybe see these people in one light, but they really don't see them as humans. And in fact, it benefits them, the person who is making the decision not to think of them as humans and to have something they can say, you know, thinking very much sort of like, you know, the George Floyd type kit or many of the people who've been subjected to police brutality in the last 20 years. It's better to be able to say there's something about them that makes them deplorable. And therefore, although this might have been a wrong thing, this was a person who deserved to have the wrong thing done to them versus unpacking that. And his work unpacks that and says this person who maybe did something that made her get killed, and he's writing a whole book about this, watched three of her friends get needlessly killed in school. And her, her tweet story clearly tells about that trauma, but it's written in street language, which means nobody takes the time to sort of unpack what is meant by these phrases by this person. So I think the, one of the things I'm hearing you say, and I'd be curious if, if I've got this right and if you have other suggestions, is wouldn't it be great if we had the ability to either expose the question that other people are not asking but should? In other words, what is there about this person we need to know? Or what is there about this statement that maybe needs to be placed in context? Or if we could educate other groups of people about the way to process information so that they don't fall into these heuristic approaches or biased approaches. Is that what you would say are some of the key take-homes? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think that, and we can't know everything about everyone in every scenario all the right. time, but I think just being able to get comfortable with the question yeah, and not just the question of like, not the, uh, confirmation bias questions. I think right. we're all comfortable with that, right? Like, well, what did they do that got them killed? The reason we ask those questions is because of anxiety. And we want to know that we're doing everything we can to be safe, right? So mm. if we say, well, every time someone's killed by a police officer, they did something, they said something, they they were antagonistic, they were um, erratic. They we We try to name all of these things that we think we would never do if encountering a police officer, that makes us feel safe. It makes us feel in control of me, mm -hmm. of that's one way mm -hmm. we will never die because right. we would never act erratic. We would never pull a 
bag of Skittles out really fast. We would never, you know, like we have this belief about ourselves that if we can ascribe some form of blame, it'll never be us. I think it's also, I think, for very privileged individuals, too, to say that about an experience they have never had. Um, I think it's very, what's very interesting, right, is that even in this podcast, right, when we (laughs) veered off for a second to talk about Barbie, Barbie did not make sense to you or didn't read to you. And I think for me and Harris, Barbie reads to us because Barbie is an allegory for things that we've experienced. But I think for a lot of cis men, um, especially cis het men who went to see Barbie, their response has been like, this, this hates men. And that still is a really good takeaway as like an emotional response, because that's what Barbie is saying. (laughs) Barbie's like, yes. And when women or these types of folks go and see a movie, that's frequently what we see is that this movie hates us. <laughs> um, or it's made us, it's made us, it's simplified us down to like patriarchy and horses. Like we mm-hmm. feel that <laughs> that simplified. And for some people who walk away and say, like, oh, Barbie hates men, my that my my answer is like, did you see the end? Because Barbie challenged Ken to be more that the patriarchy doesn't just hurt Barbie. It also made Ken overly simple. And he was, a, he could be complex too, he if he wanted to. But I think it's, that's what happens for a lot of folks, especially folks from a privileged standpoint. Um, and so it's easy to blame an individual for what has occurred to them, especially an individual in an experience that they'll never have, right? It's easy to blame somebody with mental health challenges and disorders for why they were killed by the police. And you hit this key point a second ago about safety. And I think one of the things that we saw in COVID and we see, I don't even think it's just social media that created it, but I think we see it more in social media just because of the access to seeing it, is that people make very quick decisions on what they believe because they want to feel safe in their decision and they want to feel safe in general. And so they just go ahead and make a confirmation bias where they go ahead and make a decision based off of the information so that they have a binary decision on where they've gone. I believe this or I believe that. And then they can settle it and they don't really have to think about it anymore. We don't, as a society, really want to take a pause to consider all the different variables um, because that would take time from having to go to the next thing. And we see it a lot in healthcare. Let's go ahead and make this decision, see if this treatment works. Let's look at this data set. Does it confirm what we already think? We see it often in treatment plans. We see it, I mean, we see it in healthcare in general, you know, and so I think it's easy just to make that decision and move forward and not always consider other variables. We see that especially in healthcare data with social determinants of health. They aren't captured very well, but sometimes those are the most rich data to be able to understand why someone's health is the way it is. If we understood their air quality or smoking status or the fact that they were unhoused for 15 years and it, you know, these variables that we haven't caught in the health record for a very long time all of a sudden are now becoming more important because we see how much they've affected people's healthcare for generations. Right. And and like what you're saying is, is that like a lot of what we experience in healthcare with people's beliefs and their behaviors is can be explained with anxiety and fear and misinformation mm-hmm. and disinformation. One of the things that really came through, and I had to read so much 
research from across the spectrum. I had to leave healthcare entirely if I wanted to do this this thesis. I had to look at like Homeland Security reports. Mm. I had to look at a lot of like media research. I mean, there was a lot that I had to consume to put together the the theory that I present. And the thing that boils to the top ultimately is several key points, which is people are anxious, people are afraid, and people are alone. Mm. And those are just such key components for why people even seek out or become invested in, especially conspiracy theories, especially people going all the way to that far end of consuming misinformation, disinformation to the point where it becomes ideology. Right. COVID really shows us that the walk away that is, is that people who intently bought all the, you know, PPE and still are doing an extensive amount of like hand washing and all the things, you know, that we told people to do in the beginning, those people are experiencing anxiety and want to control the threat to their health and their fear of death and dying or their fear of getting sick. But the people who said it's not real, the people who said they're not going to mask, the people who have said that the vaccine has, you know, nanoparticles in it, those people are having a similar emotional foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Their decision was to, to, to deny this thing because that felt like they could control more. If this thing doesn't exist or if this thing is being overhyped, these are the various ways that people deal with anxiety and feeling out of control and feeling afraid and being alone and having no real strong resource in their community to trust with like backing this information up. Oh, I have to say this has been an incredibly um, enlightening hour. I think we need to close. And I guess to do that, uh, and obviously, Evan, part of this is this inviting you back because we're going to have to continue this conversation. There's no question. <laughs> but and I hope, you know, maybe we can also get on your TikToks and podcasts and blogs, et cetera, too. I guess in closing, what I would ask is if we could leave the audience with a message about how they can get from misinformation to decision making, what would you say they should do? I think it's about first finding trusted and informed and educated folks, and that can be someone in your life, but also being comfortable with a soft amount of challenging what you learn and also looking at the resourcing. I always encourage people to get more adept at looking at what's the resource. And the other question I ask people to look at when it comes to especially disinformation is, can is this somehow going to result in this person being able to monetize? Uh, and frequently that is the key in there. When people share disinformation, especially at the heights, ultimately they're always trying to drive you to like buy a supplement from them or to, you know, for $49 a month, you can be on their VIP list on their website and have access to all their special lectures. And there's all different ways that they figure out a way to monetize. But when you start to see monetization pop up in a way that is uniquely for them, and that a lot of disinformation creators, it's a closed loop. Mm-hmm, They're, right. They re-reference each other. So mm. one of the things that, and I encourage people to be interactive. That's why I think TikTok is such a great platform is that people have frequently asked me on my videos, like, well, what's your source for this? Right, and I right. list it. I don't care if it takes me seven comments. I will list all of my sourcing because I do want you to do that. I want you to even challenge me as an educator on this platform. I want you to say, well, where did you get this from? I like to post book lists 
for that same reason, because I want people to say like, well, where, where can I learn more? Another thing that people ask is like, well, this was an interesting video, but where can I learn more? I'll give you six books. I want you to explore your world in that way. And I frequently try to give people reading material that is designed or written for anyone to can for any number of people without health training to read it and yeah. understand it. That's what I want you to do. So ask for referencing, ask for resources, mm -hmm. ask for where you can learn more about this thing. And then when you receive them, if you receive them, challenge, also look at where that resourcing comes from. Is that resourcing, is that article that's written, the, all the resource material comes from the same author? Because I've seen that a lot. Yeah. I've seen that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, or the same three authors that are using each other's same papers as proof or as referencing ask more questions. Yeah. I, th I mean, this is brilliant. I think it's an, another play on don't judge a book by its cover. Open the book, right? Yeah. And in this case, look for references, look for supporting information. Super helpful. Harris, any final words? Uh, this is fantastic. I think, you know, it, listening to this conversation and being a part of it has made me remember that we do have to be careful with having really in-depth conversations in public audiences and being a scientist and being in healthcare, we can consider how those words can be magnified through social media. And so adding context is really important. And I think it's also, you know, what you say on TikTok and I've enjoyed your content so much, you know, being a part of those conversations, engaging people, let them know that you can be a resource and saying like, please challenge me. They need folks like us uh, and, and conversations like this to happen so that people can start to think a little bit more broadly about their their beliefs and their thoughts around these topics and, and challenge themselves. This is great. So thank you so much. This has been really fantastic, Evan. And would you will you come back if invited? Sure, absolutely. Sometimes Kevin, uh, I said sometimes Kevin will often offer limoncello and that's always a good time. All we have yeah. to do is get everybody together. Uh, but but what I can offer is that I'm, I know exactly the music to play now. So state you'll hear it later on. Uh, but this yeah. is this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. All right. It was great meeting you. So I definitely agree with Evan that in medicine, we have a tendency to believe in these dichotomies, either good or bad. It's very, often very mm -hmm. binary. Yep. Um, often, you know, I think good information is nuanced. And so it can be either twisted mistakenly or purposefully. Right. I mean, I was so impressed by Evan's open-mindedness and grace, just acknowledging that we all bring our own biases and ideology to assessing information we see in the media. And Evan and the TikToks really describe that well, too. Yeah, even better, Evan provided us with these practical ways to assess the validity of information that we see online. And I think that can be really useful to everyone, a medical professional or even just the casual TikToker who's scrolling through. So I'm so glad they decided to join us. Definitely. And I think it makes total sense to end with one of their favorites, Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. Yeah. The reason why I think it makes sense is that I will bet you that many people who have heard and quote, memorized lyrics from Fast Car have no idea what it's actually saying. Mm. I think it kind of in some ways embodies the way in which misinformation circulates. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I didn't talk about that with Evan, but I, I will because I made a point of 
re-examining the words, you know, that Tracy Chapman and now Luke Combs have produced. And I never found it to be a song that was totally depressing. So I myself kind of had this epiphany of, oh, oh, yeah, stuck in the same pattern as her dad and mom. Yeah, okay, I get it now. So I think it'll be a great song for people to hear again. Anyway, thanks for listening to the episode. To hear about new releases, please look for us and find us on social media at info in the R&D on Twitter, on Instagram, on threads, and on TikTok. And if you have any questions or ideas for the things you want to hear about for new episodes, message us on any of these platforms or email us at informaticsintheround at gmail.com. And if you would like to hear more from Evan, you can search them on TikTok at EVN, the bioethicist, or Gay G-Town Bay. See you later. Goodbye. <laughs>